0: get the next 10 weeks of The Spectator in print and online for just £1. There's no commitment and you can cancel at any time, but hurry, because this offer runs for a week only. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash sale.
1: Hello and welcome to Spectator Out Loud. Each week we choose three pieces from the magazine and ask their writers to read them aloud. I'm Os Gredmanson. I'm on the podcast this week. Firstly, more mad than Vlad, also says Owen Matthews as he evaluates Russia's ultra-nationalist threat. Then, Cindy Yu reads her review of The Backstreets, a new book by Perhat Tarson. before Alicia Healy tells us that the Queen's handbag was her secret weapon. Up first, Owen Matthews.
2: Russia without Putin was the cry of Muscovites who turned out to protest against Vladimir Putin's return to the presidency for a third term back in December 2011. Crowds 100,000 strong chanted their opposition on Moscow's Academician Sakharov Prospect, as symbolically named a venue as you could wish for, as riot police stood calmly by. There was anger in the crowd, but there was hope too, not least because the massive protest was officially sanctioned. One after another, prominent opposition politicians such as Ilya Yashin, Boris Nemtsov, and Alexei Navalny denounced Putin from a stage provided by the city authorities. Today, the memory of those protests seems to belong to a different age of Russia. Yashin and Navalny are in jail. Nemtsov was shot dead. Since the beginning of Putin's invasion of Ukraine, street protests by a single person, let alone 100,000, have become illegal. Since 24th of February, some 16,000 people have been arrested for protesting, including one woman near Red Square who was detained for holding up a piece of paper reading two words, implying nirt or no war, and another for brandishing a paper that was completely blank. Russia's liberal opposition has been completely crushed. But in the country's new wartime reality, the liberals' main slogan has also come to raise more questions than answers. What would Russia without Putin actually look like? If not Putin, then who? The grim reality is that Putin's most dangerous potential opposition today comes not from the pro-Western liberals, but from the nationalist right – before the annexation of Crimea in 2014, ultranationalist ideologues such as Alexander Dugin, whose daughter Dasha was killed by a car bomb in Moscow last month, Christian fundamentalist TV station-owning billionaire Konstantin Malafeev, and paramilitary imperialist and former FSB officer Igor Stedilkov were on the fringes of Russian politics. After Crimea... Putin not only brought these orthodox ultranationalists inside the Kremlin's ideological big tent, but actively began to model his own propaganda message on their toxic brand of imperial nostalgia. But there was one problem with riding the ultranationalist tiger. While the spin doctors who ran the Kremlin's ideology and media empire had an essentially cynical postmodern and consumerist attitude to ideology, the people they had recruited actually believed the message. More, many of these Christian ultranationalists were unafraid to bite the hand that fed them and denounce their masters for unpatriotic corruption. Quotes, Putin and his circle have recently taken steps which I believe will almost inevitably lead to the collapse of the system. Stilkoff, who had served as the Minister of Defence of the self-proclaimed Donetsk People's Republic, told The Guardian as far back as 2016. Quotes, We don't know yet how and we don't know when, but we are certain it will collapse, and more likely sooner than later. End who openly boasted about executing his own soldiers for looting, had been instrumental in toppling Ukrainian authority in the series of towns across the Donbass in 2014. And he openly boasted, too, about doing the same in Russia. Quote, We do not plan to launch a revolution to depose Vladimir Putin, he warned darkly. Having taken part in five wars, I know very well what it is like when authority and social infrastructure collapse in big cities. Nobody wants that, including me. But unfortunately, it could be inevitable. Even Navalny, often described in the Western media as Russia's leading opposition figure, clearly recognized that the Kremlin was far more afraid of ultra-nationalists than they were of him. Quote, the Kremlin is very scared of nationalists because they use the same imperial rhetoric as Putin does, but they can do it so much better than him, said Navalny before his 2020 poisoning. During the build-up to the invasion of Ukraine, the Kremlin turned to ultra-nationalist paramilitary organisations to boost its forces. Chief among them was the Wagner Private Military Company. Its founder, GRU Special Forces Lieutenant Colonel Dmitry Utkin, earned the call sign Wagner because of his passion for the Third Reich. Photographs published last year showed him sporting a Waffen-SS collar tab and Reich's Adler eagle tattoos on his neck and chest. According to a report in May by Germany's Federal Intelligence Service, leaked by Der Spiegel, numerous other Russian right-wing extremists and neo-Nazis are fighting in Ukraine too, among them the Wagner group contingent Russisch, whose co-founder Alexei Milchakov is infamous for social media videos of himself chopping the head off a puppy. Quotes, I'm not going to go deep and say I'm a nationalist, a patriot, an imperialist, and so forth, Milchakov said in a December 2020 video. Quotes, I'll say it outright, I'm a Nazi, end quote. Another group is the Russian Imperial Movement, a white supremacist group that was designated a global terrorist organization by the United States two years ago. In July, the Wagner Group was authorized to recruit prisoners from Russian jails, offering reprieves in exchange for military service. Such groups may be small and marginal, but they have been armed by the Russian military and ideologically empowered by near-hysterical levels of state propaganda. Orthodox warriors, do your work, was Kremlin propagandist-in-chief Vladimir Solovyov's reaction to news of the Bucha massacre in April. Since news broke last week of Ukrainian forces storming through Russian defences in Kharkiv province and retaking 6,000 square kilometres of territory, the levels of hysteria have only grown. Quote, there is still civilian infrastructure left in Ukraine, end quote, RT head Margarita Simanyan asked sarcastically after Russian rockets battered power stations in retaliation for the Kharkiv breakthrough. With hatred for Ukraine whipped up to such levels, the reaction to every defeat by Kiev's forces, both on the extreme right and in the Kremlin media, has been the same, an aggressive search for traitors. Quotes, I directly accuse Defence Minister Sergei Shoigu of at a minimum criminal negligence, Strilkov quotes, Stilkov posted on his Telegram channel in May. Quotes, I have no grounds to accuse him of treason, but i would suspect it." End quotes. "Russian commanders have been quotes shamefully indecisive," railed Alexander Sladkov, a military correspondent for state tv. Even Solovyov has vented furiously over the quotes shameful time it took for weapons supplies to reach the russian military in ukraine. For the kremlin, the search for scapegoats and traitors should be a deeply worrying sign of the future. As long as the Russian army steamroller was grinding on through Severodonetsk and Lysychansk and criminal officials were busy making preparations for referendums in the occupied territories in June and July, Putin could plausibly have declared victory. But last week, with the collapse of the Kharkov Front, the war turned a corner. Quotes, the vector has changed, unquote, said the daughter of one of Putin's Close associates, who herself, who is a senior Kremlin media executive, quotes, "The people are still oblivious. They gobble up the propaganda, but everyone who is paying attention feels it. Putin is not a winner anymore. Putin is not about to lose the war any minute now. Ukrainians have so far taken back less than six percent of the territory they have lost since 2014." Nor is he about to become the scapegoat for anything. His image as Russia's good Tsar, built up over 20 years of relentless propaganda, means that he will be the last to be blamed by his people. But the question now arises of how he will lose it eventually. Will it be in the form of a slow, attritional stalemate that ends in a truce allowing Putin to stay in power? Or a fast and humiliating collapse that could shake his regime to the core? In part, the outcome is in the hands of the West, with whose arms the Ukrainians are almost exclusively fighting. But many in the West are not so sure that Russia without Putin is a good idea. Keeping an odious regime in power for fear of something even more unstable and dangerous has a long history in Western diplomacy. The US strongly desired to preserve the Soviet Union, as evidenced by George H.W. Bush's notorious Chicken Kiev speech in 1991 for fear of a patchwork of failed nuclear-armed states that might replace it. And France's Emmanuel Macron has a, quote, strong fear of a Weimar Republic-type situation if Putin were to fall as a result of the Ukraine war, says a senior European statesman who has spoken to the French president regularly during the crisis. That fear is the root of Macron's controversial insistence that, quote, Putin must not be humiliated, end quote, in any future peace settlement that the EU must not follow the policy of, quote, the most warmongering types in Europe, since this would risk extending the conflict and closing off communications with Putin completely, end Macron's position naturally infuriated the Ukrainians and the Poles and the Bolts, whom he had implicitly accused of being "fauteurs de guerre or warmongers. Like the collapse of the USSR, the political ramifications of the Ukraine war may be out of the West's hands. But what's for sure is that humiliating defeat will be seen not only by the orthodox ultranationalists, but by most Russians as a colossal failure by the whole political elite. They will be angry. And that elite will try to defend itself. How will the men at the top of the Kremlin keep the ultranationalists in check and out of power? by making concessions to the West, releasing political prisoners, paying reparations to Ukraine and all the other humiliations that will be demanded of Russia as a price for removing sanctions and reaching a peace deal, or by installing someone even more aggressively nationalist than Putin himself, you can attempt to continue to ride the tiger for fear of being devoured by it.
1: That was Owen Matthews. Next, Cindy Yu.
0: Like Dostoevsky's underground man, Perhat Tersen's unnamed protagonist is an outcast, a young Uyghur in an increasingly Han city, Urumqi, the capital of Xinjiang. He is alone, angry, unstable and homeless. The events of the back streets take place over one long night as he looks for somewhere to stay. I just wanted a small space, the space a person would need in a graveyard, or more accurately, somewhere to belong. In this poignant and disturbing short novel, the influence of Dostoevsky and Camus, among others, is clear. It's not meant to be comfortable reading. Identity permeates the book in the same way that a fog forever buries Urumqi. Almost everyone the narrator meets as he walks through the smog-filled streets seems terrified of him. At one point, an old man passes, repeatedly muttering, Pee, the Mandarin for chop. Chop, 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 chop the people from the six cities. These are the ancestral homeland of the Uyghurs. They are not welcome here. Tersen wrote the backstreets years before the first internment camp appeared in Xinjiang, so the book is eerie reading for those of us who know how the story ends. Since 2017, hundreds of thousands of Uyghurs have disappeared, either into the Chinese Communist Party's re-education camps or into incarceration proper, as Darren Beiler, who translates and introduces this edition, reminds us. Those missing include Byler's anonymous co-translator, as well as Turson himself, now reportedly serving a 16-year jail sentence. To the CCP, all Uyghurs are potential terrorists. Our narrator reflects on the self-fulfilling power of this mindset. Quote, Even though I was the shyest person in the world, I wanted to destroy these fancy buildings. In others, this kind of hatred sometimes turned into action, occasionally pushing some to carry out murders and acts of violence. Their depression mixed with fanaticism. Stabbing people randomly in the street came from their resentment towards the city. The thing they were stabbing wasn't a particular person. They were stabbing the city's rejection of their love, quote. Yet this novel shouldn't be defined by ethnic strife. At its core, Tersen is examining the human experience, as he told Byler many years ago. So our protagonist also battles his resentment of city life in general and the childhood trauma dealt by his alcoholic father who victimised his mother. This abuse seems to have sexualized his view of women in a Freudian way. I had intimate feelings for all women, as if women were born in this world in order to give the world love. Life as a persecuted minority colours the book, but Tersen breaks loose of narrow victimhood. The Backstreet is a compelling read on its own right.
1: That was Cindy Yu, and finally, Alicia Healy.
3: In this period of national mourning, it may seem frivolous to comment on the late Queen's handbag, After seven decades of selfless service to the nation, fashion is but a footnote to Her Majesty's glorious reign. And yet her style is something that helped to create the powerful majestic image of Queen Elizabeth II, and which made her instantly recognisable worldwide. A key part of that image, and a constant presence in her working life, was her black Lorna handbag. Lorna London was Her Majesty's handbag maker for more than 50 years, and has held the Royal Warrant since 1968. Lorna bags are formal and structured, and prove to be the ideal regal accessory for public engagements. Its first royal patronage came from Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth the Queen Mother, in the 1950s. Where others might have bought the latest It bag, Queen Elizabeth exercised characteristic restraint with her handbags throughout her life, focusing on quality over quantity in her loyalty to Lorna. Her Majesty was known for her love of colour in her working wardrobe, wearing rainbow brights in order to be better seen by the public. But her accessories were always muted. Black, mostly, sometimes beige or white in summer, gold or silver in the evening. Neutrals that matched with every colour, allowing her to dress with ease. The timeless style of her trusty traviata top-handle bag suited the Queen's no-nonsense nature, and symbolised her steadfast reign. The late Baroness Thatcher shared the Queen's love of a strong top handle from classic British labels such as Lorna and Asprey. These bags helped promote a look of someone in control. Like Queen Elizabeth, Thatcher's handbags were such a part of her identity that they have earned their own special place in history, and have been described as the former Prime Minister's secret weapon. One such bag has been exhibited at the Victoria and Albert Museum, alongside Sir Winston Churchill's red dispatch box. Both are artefacts of cultural and historic importance. It has been said that there was another purpose to the Queen's handbag on public engagements, namely that she would use it as a secret signalling device. According to royal historian Hugo Vickers, Her Majesty would switch the bag from her left arm to her right to signal for an aide to come to her rescue if she tired of the conversation in which she was engaged. If she placed the bag on the table, this was a sign that she wanted to leave. Ever practical, Her Majesty needed a bag that focused on functionality over fashion, choosing styles with slightly longer top handles that comfortably looped over the monarch's arm, freeing her hands to accept bouquets and greet the public. Even in her final photograph, meeting her 15th Prime Minister in her sitting room at Balmoral Castle just two days before her death last week, the Queen's handbag can be seen on her left arm. Perhaps at this stage it was part her armour, part comfort blanket. Even at the age of 96, Queen Elizabeth II did not lose her ability to surprise. She delighted the public by taking tea with Paddington Bear at her Platinum Jubilee celebrations and finally revealed what she keeps in her handbag, a marmalade sandwich for later.
1: And that's everything for this week, but if you enjoyed those articles, why not pick up a copy of the Spectator magazine. I'm Oscar Edmondson, and please join us again next week.